0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Cousins at War, a Civil War novel. And the author is Ralph Beebe. And Ralph joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Ralph.
2: Hello, Steve. Nice to be with you.
1: Good to be with you
2: very pleasing to me they have
1: done... well first of all ralph i'd like to uh, read a couple things you've written about your book just to kind of set the stage for our discussion uh, you say this this story of two close cousins helps us understand the civil war from both the confederate and union perspectives could this tragedy which killed almost as the many could this tragedy, which killed almost as many Americans as died in all our other wars combined, have been avoided? So you raise a big question. You also pit these cousins against each other. A fascinating story and, and a unique perspective. Ralph, before we get into the details of the plot and of the, uh, all the characters in your book, Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you decided to do this, because we know this is not your first, this is not your first book.
2: Right. I um, I'm a historian, went to George Fox University and then taught there, taught in high school, and then at George Fox, taught history for many years. And uh as I was moving toward retirement, it just uh you know, trying to decide what will be my big retirement project, it just hit me. Well, why not write a novel, which has just as much validity as the history books that I've been writing, or at least almost as much. And that was a kind of a, a, a quote novel, <laughs> novel idea for me. I really uh, enjoyed thinking about that, and I went a long time uh, gradually working on it, spending a great deal of time. Researchers in Civil War countries and uh, and other places as well, and it's uh, it just it came to me that perhaps more people would enjoy reading a novel than reading a regular history book, and I through this novel I think I tell the story of Civil War with as much authenticity as in my history books and in other people's history
1: books. We all hear that the Civil War was fought over slavery. Is that your point of view? Why did the Civil War occur?
2: Well, I think if we had never, if we never had had slavery, there never would have been a Civil War. However, the uh, war wasn't simply slavery. The war had uh, to do with um, divisions, but uh, slavery was an aspect with a very great difference in the South as in the North in terms of their economies, in terms of um, the, the way of life and the fact of slavery or some sort of cheap um, labor. Very important in the South and all that cotton have cheap labor, and uh, so they, of course, went with the went the slave route and gradually in the north there began to be more and more people who defended against slavery. And uh so I, I would say that slavery well I don't think there was been a civil war if there hadn't been slavery, but there were other causes as well.
1: Could the civil war been avoided?
2: Definitely. I think it could have been avoided had um, we well, I mean the, the very simple way, when you look at it in hindsight and think of the millions and millions of dollars we spent on the war. If they had just spent some of those dollars buying the slaves or buying creating an alternative uh, so that the, the slaves then would have land for themselves or opportunities, and so that uh, the um, worker people in the South who had slaves had to give up their cheap labor could also get a relatively cheap labor probably with a um, government uh, handout, which would have cost uh, so much less even in dollars and obviously in lives than the Civil War did. So the, the war could have been avoided, but if seems like what happens so often is that we think of war as the first alternative whereas I wish we thought of it as the last alternative.
1: Well let's talk about these two main characters Aaron and Joel Haskins, cousins. Uh, tell us about Aaron.
2: Well Aaron is uh, a, a nice young man as and both of them are. Um, the, the, two, the two live uh, almost together, farm the same farm together. Their fathers do. And uh, they um, grow up very, very similar. Aaron is um, of what I think you and I would think of, at the beginning of the book, as a really very nice young man, tw- uh, 20 years old. hears the call to war, and he jumps up and takes off because it seems like that there's a real reason Fear of losing their two slaves, for example, lived uh, in Maryland, where there wasn't of slaves, but there were a few, and they had had a family of two slaves and, and two of their children. And Aaron, I I think that uh, we would enjoy Aaron, but um, but in this particular case, he took the side that most Marylanders did, and they went to war on the side of slavery.
1: And you write that Aaron feared Lincoln.
2: Well, there was a great deal of fear on the part of Aaron and other people, and and particularly slave owners, because there was this feeling, which Lincoln denied, but there was this feeling that uh, Lincoln would try to take their slaves away. And uh, Lincoln, although Lincoln only got 40% of the national vote because you know, the, the Democratic Party divided into North South, so, uh, uh, Lincoln's 40% of the vote gave him the victory. But, um, he, uh, he did cause a lot of fear because there was, uh, he, I mean, nobody knew much about him. I think that there was a, a great deal of assumption that the slave, the slave was in danger. And of course this was not the beginning of this. This had gone on for several years if there might be some danger to their slaves, some danger to them holding this one. And uh Lincoln gets elected and it is uh Terram thanks and a lot of others uh well there there goes our way of life. There goes our slavery and of course as you know uh uh, immediately after Lincoln was elected, states in the South began to secede. Uh, just uh, a month later, South Carolina, and then gradually, six more. By the time Lincoln was inaugurated, so the, the Union was already greatly divided. So yes, there was a, a great deal of fear on Aaron's part and on uh, other people in the South, and it's it did have, a, I think it had a lot to do with slavery that uh, Lincoln would, uh, would take away their slaves. Lincoln promised not to, but I didn't think they believed him.
1: Well, tell us about Aaron's cousin, Joel. Now, he's got a whole different perspective on everything.
2: Joel um, seems to be uh, more uncertain. He has a little different they their cousins, they live side by side. They work together. They've been best friends all their lives. This is the first important thing that they've ever disagreed on. But Joel, um, for one thing, his mother—actually, uh, his father—had lived for a while in Pennsylvania, married a Quaker woman, and um, that influenced the uh, the situation. Although, when um, um, so, the grandfather died, the family moved back, uh, his, his mother's father moved to the original farm. So, this mother who opposed slavery influenced Joel a great deal. But in her opposition to slavery, um, what do you think she could do about it? What, uh, you imagine a person that grows up as a Quaker in opposition to slavery, marries a guy who has lived temporarily in Pennsylvania, um, but then who has to go back when his father dies, back in the farm. Of course, his wife has to go with him, and so she winds up very opposed to slavery, but as the family, as the part of a family that owns slaves, so it's very difficult for her. And I think we see some of that in Joel, and we see Joel with a great deal of love, uh, affection and a feeling for his mother and for the position that she was taking. A lot of issues, but of course slavery is one of them. And I think that probably had something to do with Joel's uh, rejection of war. Of course, another factor is that you had recently been married, but in fact, you've been married only a month from the war started. But um, so that would have been one uh, practical thing. I think the key thing is that Joel just could not make that easy decision with Aaron. That uh, yeah, we've got to go fight and defend slavery. I think that he had some questions in his mind about slavery was a legitimate alternative.
1: But Joel finally joins the Union Army, and now he's his cousin's enemy.
2: And a whole bunch of things happened that I don't have time to talk about now. But uh, eventually, uh, after the Battle of Sharpsburg in, in the September of 62, um, and um, some things that happened to him change, changed him a little bit, or at least made him willing to go and uh, fight. But the thing that just surprised when, he, when his cousin found out things that, that surprised Aaron when he found out that Joel decided that if he was, that, that he saw that the Union cause was right. He, de- he decided, in spite of the fact that his family owned slaves, he decided that it was, uh, it was wrong and that uh, the Union cause that he, that he must support because it uh, was very, very difficult breaking away from his wife at the time, but, uh, but and his wife was pregnant too by that time. That was, this was uh, October of 62, and uh, he decides that uh, he must go. I think one of the things that has affected Joel is that after Aaron went to war, and most of the kids in their neighborhood, uh, went to war, and, and men as well. But after they, to the war, here was Joel among only a few people who refused to fight. And they, uh, there's a lot of, uh, condemnation from those people. called probably a coward. And, uh, I think that may have, may have, uh, I, I think it probably did affect Joel, uh, and make Joel feel that, uh, I don't know, you know, and so that whole bunch of things that came up and uh, hit him by September, October of 62, a year and a half after the war started, he finally joined, but joined on. The human
1: and your story is also a story of reconciliation.
2: Ah, uh, yes, that's the beauty. I uh, they, eventually the two boys, and I, I doubt that they ever really changed their minds, but they're reconciled, and it turned out to be a horrible experience they had lived, but uh, love overcame
1: it. Hold on here for a second. Ralph, what are your concluding thoughts as we talk about your book, Cousins at War? Well,
2: my concluding thoughts are that we should, every time we go to war, we should think seriously about um, for sure whether or not with that, that this is the only alternative we have. Can we save lives? can we save money? Can we save uh, a sense of morality if we seek all the peaceful possibilities? and there were plenty of them in the Civil War if they had yeah, you, you know <laughs> my concluding thought, which really irritates me, is that so often we think of fight first and don't think what might be the alternatives. So this book doesn't explain all the alternatives, but it certainly opens the door to uh, some of the possible alternatives that Joel and Aaron had. And I am glad that uh, Joel went the way that he did.
1: We've been listening to Ralph Beebe. He's the author of his book, Cousins at War, a Civil War novel. Ralph, tell us how to get your book.
2: Well, um, through our universe directly would be one thing. Uh, if you live near me <laughs> in Oregon, you can uh, buy it from me or places around here. Um, I, I think all of the places that... uh iUniverse sells, all the, the big bookstores, Barnes right. & and Noble, and all those have it or will soon have it.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ralph, for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it very much.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages.
1: Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
3: Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4 3 central on toginet.com.
0: The title of the book, You Are Here,
1: a Novel, and the author is Chris Deliani, and Chris joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Chris.
4: Hey there, Steve. How are you?
1: Welcome to the show. Let me read a couple things you've written about your book. You say this, a young painter trying to rebuild his life in San Francisco finds himself the unlikely love object of two very different men. You also say, this is not a coming out story. Here the characters are all more or less out and have been living in the community for years. The conflict in this story comes from within the community. So before we get into details about the characters and the story line, the plot, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris, and why you decided to write your book.
4: Uh, sure. Sure. Um... Hi, uh, so uh, many years ago, um, I uh, was pursuing a uh, career in uh, journalism. I got a journalism degree. Um, this is in 1990. Um, after uh, much effort, finally got a job in the profession. I uh, decided I didn't really care for it and uh, that I would uh, be happier pursuing a life uh, writing fiction. Uh, this is all in Boston, which is where I grew up. And from there, I decided I wanted to move, uh, just make a clean break and start all over again and move to San Francisco um, and devote myself to writing fiction. Uh, so this goes back uh, 20 years now, and it's from that point that um, I decided I wanted to write uh, a book like You Are Here, something like that, something um where it wasn't, you know, not not a coming out story. Something where you know the community is uh, maturing, and that the conflict is all within. I was observing. Uh, it was from there my initial observations um, of of the community, and you know, just coming out as a, as a young man uh, that uh, made me inspired to write the book.
1: Now, your book is set immediately after the passage of Proposition Eight. Why did you do that?
4: I, well, I didn't initially want to do that. I, you know, the my initial the initial draft of the novel was actually written in the mid 90s, and then I had um, tried to get it published, and then put it aside, and then I wanted to uh, redo it. And when I did start redoing it, it was in 2008, and then Proposition 8 did pass, and uh, which was of course a, a terrible disappointment at the time. And uh, I thought, well, if I'm going, if uh, life has uh, handed the community this lemon, I was going to make uh, lemonade out of it, and make fiction out of it, and make it uh, a, a serious plot point for one of the characters. Um, at the time, I predicted that Proposition 8 would eventually be overturned, and uh, I saw it as an opportunity, sort of a one-time opportunity to create this predicament for this character at this particular moment in time, knowing that. Uh, for future novels, um, I would not be able to uh, have this plot point. So I really wanted to take advantage of, uh, you know, people who voted for Proposition, they thought they were uh, ending gay marriage forever in California. I was looking, I looked ahead and thought, no, this is, I think it will eventually get overturned. And I want it, I want the situation placed uh, in the book. So that's kind of good.
1: Tell us about Peter Bankston, the main character.
4: Peter Banksin is the main character. Yes, so uh, he's the young painter. He uh, actually, uh, uh, his passion for art is one that I share. And I, uh, the only thing that I don't share with the character is uh, uh, even uh, remote ability to draw. Um, when uh, th- back in the mid 90s, um, i was starting. Uh, I'd taken a trip by myself to sort of clear my head to uh, to Paris. Uh, I scraped uh, together my savings and uh, got got a cheap flight over there. And I uh, went to the Louvre and I had all the time for myself to wander the galleries and look at all the paintings and it was from there that I sort of got uh, that desire to write about a painter and uh, just uh, get really fascinated about what it is that motivates painters to uh, put paint to canvas. Um, so that's kind of what, that's kind of how it got started with Peter. And also, his desire—the uh, uh, part of his plot—is that he, he wanders around Europe, um, going to all museums and drawing and stuff. So that's how that uh, that fits about. Anyway, so he he too moves to San Francisco under much uh, more serious circumstances than I ever did. He uh, has he's uh, got uh, a family back home, a uh, highly dysfunctional one that he wants to get away from. He comes to San Francisco in the hope of. Uh, being embraced by the community and find, you know, finding a new life that way. Uh, whether or not he does, uh, is the sort of the, the suspense in the novel and as he goes along his way, uh, finds that the people there, uh, are, you know, some are good and some are bad and some are in between and it's up to him to figure it out. And that's the driving plot. That's the driving, is, is the driving thrust of the story.
1: Well, let's take a stab at learning more about the good, the bad, and uh, someone between uh, who would you say is a, a, a great ally of Peter, of uh, his support?
4: Okay, well, among his allies are the, well, he has, uh, he, find, he finds a friend in uh, the character of Ben. He is something of a flighty character, uh, kind of, Kind of an airhead, maybe he drinks too much, but uh, basically a very good soul, uh, a very good soul uh, uh, in, in, in his heart. I actually had a, a tremendous amount of fun creating that character because uh, he's kind of all over the place. Um, he also finds his, uh, finds an ally in his uh, trainer. He finds he, he gets a he cheap trainer at a sort of at a chain uh, uh, gym and uh the trainer uh Clayton uh helps him out uh with uh some advice on how to how to navigate the uh, community um, among the bad characters uh he's got a roommate Jeff who is uh kind kind of a, a psycho which is uh, trying which is uh, which is putting it mildly frankly and uh he you know he, he meets people he's got um his, uh, his first date is a guy named Don, Donald. Uh, he turns out to be a disastrously bad date. I would consider him the bad. And then in between are the men that he eventually gets involved in. Those are, those are the characters of Miles and Nick. They're both, uh, in my opinion, both very, uh, very good guys, but also they have their issues and their flaws, and it's up to Peter to kind of uh, navigate uh, all of that as he goes through the novel.
1: Does Peter save Nick's
4: life? Does he save Nick's life? Um, well, I'm not sure. I guess it's up to the reader to decide whether Peter saves Nick's life. Uh it's not quite sure whether it's not it's not quite certain whether or not Nick's life is in danger uh during that particular uh chapter. Um but that that's an interesting that chapter is a very interesting one. What I wanted was um for the first half of the novel, Peter is very much uh, needing other people to help him out. And I knew as the novel progressed that you know, for Peter to start to uh, grab the notice of other characters, that he that he himself would actually have to start doing things. He'd have to start stepping up and and doing things. And in that particular uh, chapter with Nick, where Nick is in, where Nick may or may not be in mortal danger, um, I knew uh, I sort of. Threw that in. I thought, well, why, you know, why don't I create a uh, situation where Peter really does step up to the plate and does something truly heroic? And it's from there that I uh, I wrote that chapter.
1: So you basically uh, formed this story around three gay men that uh, form this unlikely love triangle.
4: Yes. Yes. I. Uh, you know. I. Uh, you know, sort of, that's sort of a, that's sort of a classic structure, and, uh, as it progressed, um, you know, it's written in the point of view of all three of the characters, each one turning off, uh, you know, first it's, uh, Peter's point of view is chapter one, Miles' point of view is chapter two, Nick's point of view is uh, chapter three, and then from there, uh, proceeded to write the story, and only towards the end when the final shape finally came into my focus, that I wound up with essentially essentially what I uh, the, the book is a five act play um, in three chapter increments with each of the p- point of view characters taking a turn with Nick final with Nick having the final turn in uh, chapter 15 where he uh it, you know his uh Peter's fate at the end of the novel is is told through the eyes of Nick um, one of the, one of them one of the guys that he gets involved in, and he's, uh, it's Nick's judgment. It's through his eyes that the reader finally gets uh, the sense of what uh, finally happens to Peter at the end of that book.
1: And your book is longer and more involved than most gay romances.
4: Uh, I believe that's true. Uh, yeah, I believe uh, many gay romances uh, tend to focus on uh, you know sort of. Uh one one couple, one situation. Um, I don't want to I've not read many I've not read many gay romances. I tend to focus on um, when I write my own book. I actually like to go outside of myself when I read uh when I when I do actual reading. So I actually go outside the genre. I, I read a lot of classic fiction, a lot of uh, you know, Henry James, Jane Austen. Currently I'm reading um, The Adventures of Argy March by Saul Bello. Um, I kinda like to get outside of myself. Those books tend to be, uh, very complicated and involved and I suppose it's, uh, because of that reading that, uh, uh, that my own book tends to be a little bit, uh, is, is a little bit more complicated and involved than, 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 than many.
1: Why the narrative voice?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. My first book I wrote uh, completely in the first person, which frankly is a, is a, you know, so I'm just inhabiting the skin of the character, and I stayed in that character for the entire novel. And uh, writing in the first person, I find is it, for me, it's just a lot, uh, just a lot easier. But for this one, I wanted to create a little bit of distance. I did want the third person, wanted to create a little bit of distance, Between the reader and the characters, I want and I wanted that for the reader's benefit to be able to sort of stand uh, when you write uh, writing in the first person for me is where you know allowing the reader to get really really close to the character really you know provides uh, it's a great opportunity for a lot of immediacy and a lot of uh, uh, depth there. Um, But in the third person, what I really want, especially in this situation where this is a very it's a larger story with three different points of view, I wanted to have just a little bit of a distance so that uh, I, as an author, could, um, you know, put in put in observations that the characters themselves might not notice. Um, so that is what, and uh, considering that the characters all have, all of them are flawed characters um, in the sense that um, they're not aware of some of the things that they do. And I wanted the reader to be able to be clued in on that. So that is why I created that, um, that narrative, voice.
1: Why do you feel there's a definite hungry for love stories between gay guys?
4: I well, the it is a humongous uh community out there. I belong on uh, on Goodreads, which I'm a Goodreads author, there's an MM uh, M M-M romance or male male romance group. Uh there that group I think currently consists of eleven thousand uh members. Um, I think they that community that readership I think is underserved um, certainly by the major publishers. The major publishers aren't uh, uh aren't attracting that. But the books, you know, uh the, the the books that are being out there, they're they're being distributed by much smaller presses, have uh a definitely definitely a wide uh wide, well read, uh widely read uh readership. So um, I frankly think that that, that genre, you know there should be more books. There should be more attention paid to that type of genre by, I think, the major publishers. You don't see those books on the shelves in bookstores, and I think if they were, I think they'd sell.
1: Now, in your book you show conflicting perspectives about the Gay Pride Parade. Uh, which one is yours?
4: Well, you know, I, uh, you know, having just uh, gone to the Gay Pride Parade in three weeks, um, I, it, it's interesting the, the the two perspectives. It really depends on uh, some years. I have one perspective, and some years I have another perspective. There have, been, there have been years where I thought, okay, you know, this is this is old, this is tired. I mean, you know, we're in San Francisco. There's you know, what what really is the point? Um, but then uh what was interesting, the Pride Parade that uh is depicted in the in the book is the Pride Parade of two thousand and nine, which I went to on purpose to write for uh for uh for research for the book and it was there that it really, you know, really sank in like just how important that, that parade is, especially that particular year because that was the year after proposition proposition eight passed. So when I went to the parade, I just can't help uh but I couldn't help but feel Comforted knowing that I wasn't alone in my frustration and disappointment that that Proposition 8 passed, and then just three weeks when I went, Proposition 8 has uh, since been overturned here in California, and the euphoria that palpable was just you know just something I'm not sure if I'd be able to even put into words, but it was a really it was a really great day. Um, So those are the two perspectives that uh, have lived inside of me over the years, and that is the tension, and the tension between those, those two perspectives is what I wanted to portray in the book.
1: Chris Deliani, he is the author of his book, You Are Here, a Novel. Chris, tell us how to get your book.
4: You can get it anywhere. You can get it on. Uh, you can get it on any of the online uh, marketers. Also, it is available uh, in your in your local bookstore. They will most likely not have it on the shelf, but you can go to your bookstore and just say, uh, "I want to order this book," and they will order it for you.
1: Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being with us on iUniverse Radio.
4: Thank you, Steve.
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right
3: after these messages. Get ready to laugh along with This Little Parent stayed Home with Ellie Loprit. Friday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Togedad.com. This is a truly realistic, no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is method that will have you laughing and crying surviving while struggling, and hammering away at the hardships as you travel through the greatest journey of your life. Get empowered by joining thousands of other parents who have also decided to take a leap of faith into a double career with longer hours and half the pay simply because of the love they have for their children. Together, we are rebuilding a new economy that will support us rather than enslave us. Never again will we have to choose between raising our children and earning to provide for them. It won't be easy, but it will be worth it. For more on Allie and her success, check out her website, OurMilkMoney.com. So come get empowered with This Little Parent Stayed Home with Allie Lopreek. Friday afternoons at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on Toginet.com.
0: to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen.
1: The title of the book, Thomas Clayton. And the author is Randy J. Harvey. And Randy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Randy. How are you doing, Steve? Well, this is quite a thriller uh, set in Johnston County, Oklahoma, in East Texas. uh, As you say, where your father grew up, but uh, fictitious towns, fictional characters, but unfortunately much of what you write about goes on in society today. Uh, You say this, of course there's nothing normal in Johnston County, Oklahoma, and it doesn't get any more normal when Bastard Boats takes in his orphaned half-brother kid after the fool kills his wife and daughter in a car wreck. So it's right there, it starts out with uh, an incredible, uh, I guess, events, uh, dramatic, traumatic, and it gets more and more throughout the novel.
5: Yeah, young Thomas Clayton is woken up in the middle of the night by his uh, uncle, which he's never met, which he soon refers to as the Bastard Boats because he's such a cantankerous old guy. And uh, the young man discovers that his mother and father and sister were killed in an auto accident. And as time progresses, he understands that there was a lot of conflict between Boats and his brother, uh, Thomas Clayton's dad. And uh, the old old bird takes him back to Johnson County, Oklahoma to live with him, but things go downhill from there.
1: So we've got this young boy who's, uh, well, he's kind of innocent, but he's going to grow up and... Uh, Boats is, what, going to have quite an impact on him, I guess, isn't he?
5: Well, Boats is an oil man, and uh, is never married, and never intended to marry. Uh, turns out that at one point he was sweet on Thomas Clayton's mother, but uh, his uh, half-brother won out in marrying her. Uh, so he kind of takes this kid in, doesn't really care to have a kid, and uh, they have a Quite a fight, and the old boy um, ships him off to live in the bunkhouse with all of the roughnecks and farmhands, and so he starts getting quite an education.
1: Yes, because this story, uh, we're talking uh, about what kind of uh, you know, there's there's uh, a lot of criminal activity going on in this little tiny Oklahoma town.
5: Well, Johnson County, Oklahoma is, uh, is the place where this is written, where my father grew up. And, of course, it's a yarn, so I don't uh, claim that any of the characters are real. But uh, the Bastard Boats is a member of a criminal cartel, uh, referred to as the Combine, who controls all of the business activity and goings on in Johnson County. They buy and sell... Uh, they manipulate, blackmail, and uh, use the judicial system with a judge on the payroll and a member of the Combine. To take property from people, send people to jail and, and take their property, it's, it's quite a, an intricate web that's been webbed by these five members of the Combine.
1: Now your book has some graphic scenes.
5: Yeah, there's uh, quite a bit of uh, violence. I, I describe the book as uh, Harper Lee, uh, "To Kill a Mockingbird" meets Thomas uh, Tom Clancy. Um, it's quite a bit of intrigue and backstory. Uh, you find out a lot of the characters are far more than what they initially appear as time goes on.
2: Um,
5: the the whole combine in Johnson County, uh, you have greedy men who are trying to take over more and more and accumulate more wealth and don't mind uh, killing people to get it done or blackmailing them. Um, Interestingly, the combine is not uh, immune to being blackmailed themselves, and in fact, uh, one of the primary characters... Uh, who is dead at the start of the book and remains dead throughout the book, uh, Doc Lofton, uh, who is a doctor who lost his medical license and, uh, for drug dealings and so on, has been blackmailing members of the community for years and maintains these secret files on everyone and, uh, as as the story unfolds and we discover Doc Lofton is dead, they, the hunt is on to find these secret files because the person who controls them, uh, controls the county and all of the major players in it. So enter into the story a, a sheriff by the name of uh, Lee Bob, who is quite an interesting character. He, he's not above planning evidence, blackmailing people, and having sex with inmates. Uh, or suspect uh, but he does have he does draw a line when it comes to murder so uh, he's out to catch the killer of Doc Lofton and as time progresses different combine members uh, start turning up dead and the sheriff throughout the book is pursuing the discovery of the, the murderer
1: well with all this, criminal activity and violence, in the midst of it, though, you have some uh, very uh, redeeming themes, uh, you know, themes that really are part of life in general, uh, the bottom line, for example, real men love for a lifetime, not for a moment.
5: Right. Yeah, Thomas Clayton, the primary character in the book, uh, was in, had instilled in him what I consider Southern values of, uh, you know, the preeminence of family, loving your family. I myself have been married to the same woman for 37 years. My father was married to his first wife, my mom, for 27 before she passed away, and to his second wife for 26. My wife's folks have been married for 66 years. So family is an important theme in our upbringing and, and placing a priority. And, For Thomas Clayton, his mother and father, even by age 15, had implanted in him, uh, the importance of family and, uh, loving a person and developing a relationship with it. So throughout the book, Thomas Clayton is constantly, uh, challenged with, you know, loyalty to family and friends versus the bastard boats and the criminal activity. So there's quite a love story that develops uh, between Thomas Clayton who's this young innocent uh, boy who goes to live with the bastard boats and then starts discovering what work is all about. discovers football and friends and uh, loyalty to those friends. So one of the dilemmas that he faces is, you know, is he willing to give up his uh, core values and and strongly held belief in order to prosper and um, I'll let you read the book to find out how that turns out and there are some twists in terms of uh, Boats even though uh, Boats outwardly dislikes the boy and hates the boy uh, he takes steps to make sure the boy is taken care of and uh, he has his own set of of values. Even though he doesn't mind being a criminal, he does take care of his employees and the people that he has people that he's loyal to and who are loyal to him.
1: Well, another theme, and we've heard, you know, that money is the root of all evil, and of course the money is not the evil, but it's the loving it, and that is a big part of this book.
5: Yeah, I think... um as you read the book, you you begin to see the great conflict of people who love money and will do anything to have money, versus people who recognize people uh, that money is important, but are not willing to sacrifice who they are or what they are about to to obtain money. And in the end, it's uh, it's generally the people who have a wholesome respect for money, but don't worship it uh, when and in the long run.
1: And in the long run evil eventually does you know, that people are done in by evil.
5: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's true. Certainly that's true to a certain extent in this book, but one of the things in this book that you'll discover uh, is that you know, evil gets its just desserts, but uh, sometimes people who are basically good engage in evil uh, to accomplish their their desired outcomes. Uh, the book doesn't resolve all of the the nefarious characters, doesn't bring them all to justice, but uh, we'll leave that for another day. <laughs>
1: But in the long run, uh, you're trying to tell us that it is possible to have integrity and fidelity to who you are and even what you believe.
5: Absolutely. I mean, that's an absolute core value of my own as well as the primary characters in the book. You know, if you, uh, you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror every day and be satisfied with what you see and who you are. I think that's the primary struggle that Thomas Clayton has through this book, as well as some of the other characters. Um, this book is actually two separate stories that are going on at the same time. Um, the story of Thomas Clayton is written in first person from his own uh, eyes, his own bird's-eye view. But uh, the events unfolding around the combine and happening behind the scenes in Johnson County, the conflict between the local politicians who are trying to grab control and the in the vacuum that that occurs as different combine members are killed and lose their influence over over people. Uh, so there's quite a, a intricate story told of the uh, criminal elements in Johnson County and their bid to take over. And well, eventually sounds, that spills over into Thomas Clayton's life because he becomes a target.
1: Well, it sounds like a made-for-TV movie.
5: Well, that would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'd love to see the story on the big screen.
1: <laughs> well, you've done it, the it first part. Yeah, you've done the first part. And, uh, yeah, you know, there's things like this i think uh, as much as uh... we have a uh, those of i guess those who have strong values uh... hard to sometimes just deal with the reality and i think that's why it's good for novelists like you who can uh, take us into a world where at least we're safe we're reading but we can really kind of yeah. begin to see what's really going on in society sometimes uh... you know I mean it's a psychological examination as well. Yeah. Well,
5: interesting, you know, in my own life I'm I'm a conservative Christian and uh, people who read the book that goes, "Well, this you couldn't have written this." I mean the language and the events and stuff uh, that occur in the book are startling to some people who know me as an uh, individual. But but the reality is, in my 35 uh, years of being involved in public education as a school principal and uh, educational leaders and HR director and going through the Thurston High School shooting where 22 students were shot and two were murdered and experiencing one of my first grade children when I was an elementary principal being murdered by the husband of one of our substitute teachers in a meth Uh, meth sale gone bad. And just, you know, the looking back through my own career and seeing these many tragedies that have occurred in the lives of seemingly innocent people, it gave me a bird's eye view to, to almost a voyeuristic view into the evil that exists in our society. You know, most people think of public schools as, as, uh, you know, a peaceful place and so on. But from my perspective as a school administrator, I had many opportunities to see the worst of our society in in sexual abuse of children and
2: uh, you
5: know affairs and just. Uh, I, I think it, you, you could probably best describe it as all of those things we know go on but we don't pause to think about. And so in the writing of this book, uh, even though Thomas Clayton is a very innocent young man, um, it the evil in the world spills into his life. And perhaps that's uh, a mirror image of my own life. You know, I'm a pretty... Uh, mellow person and uh you know conservative uh you know with three children and six grandchildren uh, have an ideal life in many ways uh, but i've seen the evil in the world and i think through this book thomas clayton sees the evil in the world the evil that people do to forward their own purposes and uh, have Financial gain for themselves, but in the end, it's the Thomas Claytons of the world who really get the most out of life uh, with enjoying their family and and uh, you know life in general.
1: Well, very well said. (laughs) Right. Very, 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 very well said.
5: Well, I think people will will enjoy the book. It's uh, it's a great yarn and uh, it's. fast read on 484 pages
1: but, uh, I'm sorry well I'm the book is
5: available Thomas. at amazon.com or you can go to my website readthomasclayton.com and uh, it's available through the publisher iUniverse so well, thank, you
1: you much, the thank, thank you very much Randy thank you very much Randy for being with us on iUniverse Radio
0: thank you have a great day